Praise God. Would you turn with me in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 2? We will continue in our study of the first book of the Bible, which includes for us so many introductory concepts. Yes, indeed, as we've already mentioned, the architecture of reality itself is laid out in the concepts, the beginning words, and the events that are recorded to establish an understanding, a worldview, a framework for us to know the relationship between the material universe, that which we see around us, and the God who created it. And more than this, the relationship of that holy God to us, His created beings, His creatures made in His image. The book of Genesis is absolutely foundational for our faith and for the understanding and knowledge of the world that we encounter beyond these walls. And the book of Genesis is lost on our culture today. And we must regain and proclaim these concepts. Otherwise, those whom we encounter will remain aimless, lost, and without their mooring posts and bearings. As they try to manufacture a narrative to make sense of the world, they will always and only come up short until they repair to the standard of God's Word. And so Genesis is the place that we turn for all of these things and more. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word from Genesis 2, verse 1 through uh, verse 9. That will be our text today. The aim of this morning's message is in part to recognize the continuity of Scripture from the very beginning. Unbelieving, uh, unbelievers and unbelieving scholarship and those who fancy themselves academics but don't hold the Word of God as their highest authority would have you believe that the Word of God is a loosely bound anthology, and really all that holds it together is quite literally the spine on the back of your book. But when it comes to the ideas and the concepts, they're just basically a buffet, a collection, across the ages and across the years of uh, uh, thoughts and an occasional profundity and ways that people understood their life, their society, their interactions with each other, their concept of God, but it really doesn't make much sense. Nothing, saints, nothing could be farther from the truth. If you read the Scriptures, and this is your conclusion, there is only one reason for this. Your eyes remain yet blind, yet closed to the glories of the gospel revealed from page 1 of Genesis to the final page of Revelation. The only thing missing in our understanding of Scripture is the Holy Spirit giving us the ability to comprehend indeed the very mind of God recorded in these Scriptures. My mom mentioned this morning in morning prayer that when she was first coming to grips with what is the nature of Scripture, a believer insightfully told her that when you read the Scriptures, you're encountering the mind of God. So don't be surprised if it takes a little time to discern, to understand, to get your bearings, because it is simple, yes, in some ways, but it's also immeasurably deep and amazingly intricate, powerful and complex as we explore its pages. The title of this morning's message is Covenantal Documentation. There's documentation of the covenant, the relationship between God and man from the very beginning, and this indeed is a framework that establishes uh, continuity of Scripture, it, it, it's the uh, skeleton, if you will, which the meat, and bone, or the meat uh, hangs on, and the vessels are strewn and so forth through the body of the whole work, covenantal documentation. With your Bible open now to Genesis chapter 2, would you stand with me once again this morning for the reading of God's Word? Stand again with your Bible open to Genesis 2 and let us hear God's Word proclaimed, verses 
1 through 9. Here is the holy word of God. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A heading for several points this morning in her message is Genesis 2, 1 through 9 presents. You could say also introduces. Genesis 2, 1 through 9 introduces to us a few concepts. There are four that I will uh, choose to structure our text around, that I have chosen to structure our text around this morning. Number one, the divine precedent. Number two, the inspired record. Number three, a historical prologue. And number four, a redemptive foreshadowing. So Genesis 2, 1 through 9, introduces a divine precedent. That means a pattern that God has established for us to follow. Secondly, an inspired record meaning a document by God's, uh, by God's design and by His inspiration, dictation, direction for us to recount His deeds. Thirdly, a historical prologue, that's a history, a short history of God's work and God's interaction as the great king over His lesser uh, beings, us, people made in His image. It's a historical record in the initial stages of creation. And finally, There's a foreshadow, there's a looking forward, there's prophecy in this text that foreshadows. It it shines forth, it gives something of a mirror, it forecasts what will come in the future in God's plan for salvation and redemption. That's a basic structure for our message today. Let me submit to you that just as categories are provided from the first days of creation, differentiating the creatures one from another according to their kinds, So it is with the record of biblical history following creation. Now, just a reminder, there is order that is established from the beginning of creation. We recount in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Any of you young people know the next verse? The earth and and darkness. And what's the next phrase? And the Spirit... Over the face of the waters. Very good. And God said, let there be light. So right from the very beginning, 
what part and parcel to God's creative work is establishing categories of order. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Unorganized matter, if you will, or a state of chaos in some sense. But to this um, disorder, God speaks his sovereign word and suddenly it obeys and falls into line with his intent in creation. The active element, the active ingredient for this was, is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters and suddenly, under the influence of this incredible power, this in interpersonal interaction between the Godhead and what he makes, he speaks and things come into being. He commands, let there be light and there is light. And he goes on through creation, the six days of creation, to establish all that is in the material world. And we see as his creatures are categorized phrases like this. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. Last time we were in Genesis, we asked, what kind are we? Is there a category to understand who we are? Yes. We are specific, unique among the creatures in that we are made in the image of God. That's what kind we are. Now, who has established these categories? Is it the product of impersonal forces arranging themselves by some evolutionary process independent of a sovereign and a design? Genesis 1 proclaims nothing can be farther from the truth. Genesis 2 echoes the same. No, the categories of reality are established by the God who's responsible for its existence in the first place. And so this is true this morning, not just of the nature of the creatures, but also the nature of history itself. There are categories of understanding that Genesis provides to understand time, to understand God's plans, the purpose for events as they move forward. These God has ordained and ordered as well. Thus, we see in Genesis that the calling of man and his record of faithfulness becomes a theme for the text, or lack thereof, and this is clearly accounted for in the unfolding historical record of Genesis. You may recall, God has given a purpose statement for man in Genesis 1.28. After blessing them, male and female, and creating them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over all of the living things, living thing that, uh, every living thing that moves on the earth. And so how does man follow, uh, how is his faithfulness tracked according to this command? Genesis is structured in part as a record of the dominion activity of man in this uh, forefathers period, or patriarchal sometimes, that word is used, period. The command of Genesis 1.28 is toward, it's commanding man to be faithful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subjugate it, to take dominion. And this establishes his calling, the calling of man under God and over creation. And so Genesis, in part, is a record of the account. It's a covenantal documentation of how man fulfills his job. Will the first Adam succeed in his task of dominion is the question that Genesis answers. Does Adam succeed in obeying God? Yes or no, children? No, he does not. And so Genesis then, this moves kind of a, to the last point, is a foreshadowing of a second Adam who will. As the story of man's failure 
to obey this covenantal mandate in the beginning begins to unfold in its many tragic details, then our heart yearns, the sanctified mind that reads, this bi- that reads the Bible and this account sees the great need, the desperate cry from all creation and man himself for a savior. What do we need? We need a second Adam. We need someone who will fulfill God's purposes. We need someone who will take dominion over the sin that has brought disorder back into our soul. And now we, born in sin, enter this world formless and void, as it were, spiritually before the Lord. We need someone to take dominion over this chaos of our heart and to set it in order again. We need someone to subdue Satan, our enemy, who we are powerless to oppose, who has come in and deceived the generations, beginning with Adam and then all his progeny, even us. We need someone to bring him under his feet to subjugate him. And so we see in Genesis 3.15, the prophecy, what? That the heel of Christ Jesus will crush Satan's head, even though it will be bruised. But that bruise is by design. So do you see the continuity of Scripture? From the very beginning, there's a theme, there's a story. There are pieces coming together for us to understand it in full. There's a great quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. That's a good commentary if you want to add one to your list to accompany your studies. And it just extols some of the glories of the way the Bible is written as evidence of its uniqueness, the fact it is the Word of God and Scripture itself. And the authors of this commentary uh, proceed to say the following, Whence did Moses obtain this account, so different from the puerile and absurd fictions of the heathen? So the question there is, how is Moses' account in his writing of Genesis so absolutely amazing and special? different from any other religion. How is that? Not from any human source, nor man was not in existence to witness it. So in other words, it is obvious that the author of Genesis did not get these ideas from any other man, mere man. For man was not in existence to witness it. Man was not there the first five days of creation. Not from the light of nature or reason. For though they proclaim the eternal power and Godhead by the things which are made, They cannot tell how they were made. None but the Creator Himself could give this information. And therefore, it is through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. A reference to Hebrews 11.3. And to that I say, Amen. As we behold Genesis through the whole of our study, remember those words. We are reading the very sovereignly ordained account of in God's Word, of the origin of all things and the direction of history. So let us look more closely at our text today. Genesis 2, 1 through 9 presents, first of all, the divine precedent. Let us read again 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. This is the very first Sabbath, the very first resting period after six days of work that is established as a divine pattern, as precedent. It is a picture of God's purpose, even in the ordering of time, even in the, as the creation week becomes the framework whereby we mark our own time, there's purpose to it. 
Note in this covenantal language, this covenantal documentation, that what we have had in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, is something of a, a preamble. It's an introduction of the sovereign, of the great king, of the creator of heaven and earth in his glory and power, and with a short record of his amazing works in creation. And thus we see in him that he has sovereignly ordained the perfect pattern. It is the standard, the benchmark, the holy and set apart glorious revelation to which we as his creatures ought to look to, the North Star to guide our way, as it were, the standard by which to judge everything else. This is what we see by divine precedent or by sovereign pattern that God presents in the creation week. First of all, note that there is fulfillment. When God sets his mind to accomplish something, he brings it to fruition. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. That word finished is significant. What God sets his mind to accomplish, nothing can ultimately prevent from happening, from taking place. The same God who created, who created the material world, and we see evidence of the finished work of creation all around us, is the God who announces in his son from the cross, it is finished. And so with the same certainty that ecosystems are self-sustaining, and even more so, we know that our salvation is sustained in the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is accomplished by a God who showed us by divine precedent when He sets His will to accomplish something, it will be finished. This is encouraging to you individually because God has given you a promise that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it will bring it to fruition, will finish it. He will keep you until the day of Jesus Christ. You can look to the precedent of creation and say, as surely as the sun rises and sets, and as surely as the fields bloom with His creative power, so He will cause your salvation to bloom in final and full and complete manifestation of His redemptive work as you join Him one day in heaven and ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. The Lord fulfills what He begins. The course of events in six-day creation indicate a progress unto fruition. God had, could have spoken one word and all the earth would be created. But God had a plan to reveal Himself in a certain progression. And this is why, in part, creation took six days. He is the finisher, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author, just as He is the author and finisher of the created world. Now note this in contrast to the unbelieving worldview. What is the primary concept, worldview, or uh, idea that is promoted in our nation and our culture today to, uh, as a substitute for the worldview, the claims of the Word of God? Is it not evolution, that we are here because of unguided processes? Well, think of how this could not be farther from the truth and is such a contrast to what we have in the book of Genesis on evolution, processes being responsible for us being here, an unguided you know, chain of events through this uh, sort of uh, a progression that scientists call survival of the fittest and so on. On evolution, we cannot even comprehend an idea of finality, purpose, direction, or intention in creation, let alone history. The unbelieving worldview, the man who is yet unregenerate and blind to the Word of God, he encounters this world with hopelessness, hopelessness of inevitable death. 
This material world, in his mind, is nothing but an indefinite process, bred in tooth and claw, where might makes right. And all we are as creatures are stumbling toward a meaningless, unguided future of returning to organic matter. And what a hopeless view this is. Genesis provides for us, in stark contrast to this, the purpose of God that is evident in creation and His purposes that are evident in new creation. So let us rejoice in the truth. It is so glorious and shines so bright against the darkness of the contrary. Now, secondly, under divine precedent, not only does God finish His work of creation, but He sets apart the Sabbath day as sacred and holy. Listen, on the seventh day, God finished His work, all that He had done, verse 2. He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. And then what does He do? Verse 3, God blesses the seventh day. He makes it holy because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. This set apart or sanctifying for purposes is a concept that will be developed through the course of the Bible. This is the divine precedent for God's purposes through history. In other words, just like God accomplished His work of creation in six days, and then the seventh day is a glorious and holy habitation, appreciation, and restful, uh, glorious uh, um, realization of, of His work, so all of history has a Sabbath at the end as well. God has purposes. History is not a mindless cycle of events. But in the end, the work of God in uh, history right now in saving His people will one day culminate in a Sabbath as well. You can read of this in Hebrews 4. That is, the Sabbath precedent of creation is a foreshadowing of a Sabbath yet to come for us in new creation. There will be a time when the world will be sanctified, sacred, set apart, and fully uh, prepared to be a holy habitation for the Lord in all His glory and all His perfectly redeemed saints. Now, Sabbath for us, even this day that we celebrate, we acknowledge that God has accomplished His work gloriously and and fulfilled it and finished it in creation when we celebrate the Sabbath as a a day that marks a memorial of the God that we serve, but we also celebrate the Sabbath. We acknowledge the Sabbath. We keep it holy according to the Ten Commandments in faith of the Sabbath to come. In other words, your seven-day week and your attendance right here is a demonstration. It's a confession of faith that God shapes history, that God has a plan for the future, that God has ordained a purpose to which Everything ultimately is marching towards and you will gloriously participate in if you know His Savior, Jesus Christ, today. What a great gift. What a great means. In keeping the Sabbath, it holds us accountable to remember that there is a glorious future to come because the glorious God, even in His precedent-setting work, has promised us a fulfillment of all things. So that's our divine precedent that we see Shaping, again, in this covenantal documentation, terms of understanding of God's purposes through history for us. Genesis 2, 1 through 9 presents divine precedent. Secondly, it presents an inspired record. This is verse 4 highlighted. Notice this language. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
I want you to notice something. Flip through Genesis with me and a few other reference points. Chapter 5, verse 1. We'll notice similar language. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. If we turn over to chapter 10, the beginning of that chapter, similar language. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Are you noticing a pattern? Genesis 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arshpashad uh, two years after the flood. Closer to the end of the book, as the patriarchal period continues to unfold, we see in Genesis 25, 12, this reference. Genesis 25, 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. And then finally, just to drive our point home, Genesis 36, 1. Again, we see these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites and thus proceeds with the genealogical record. So these are reference points that structure the book of Genesis. There is a continuity and order to Genesis. And when there's a shift, often in the text, it is introduced with this phrase, these are the generations. And even here in our text today, it's something of not just a, a notation, a calling to our attention by referencing generations, but it's, there's also a, a poetic uh, a beauty to it as well. These are the generations of the heavens. That could be our first phrase. Let's label that A. And the earth, second phrase, B. When they were created, C. And this, yes, it's one of these chiastic structures. It's sort of a mirror image. It's a, a way that the Bible outlines poetry. Notice again, uh, verse, or, uh, idea C is repeated in the next phrase. In the day that the Lord made. And then the two uh, concepts are reversed. The earth and the heavens. So if you can look at it closer on your own time, you can see almost like a poetic mirror image of ideas here. And right in the center is this, uh, is this concept of when the heavens and the earth were created, or another way of saying it, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. There's lots of debate in, among you know, scholarship uh, as to whether or not this phrase introduces what's to come or it summarizes what has preceded it. Well, I submit to you that even in the poetry here, the sort of mirror image, it serves as a link, a link between what God has done, the focus on the big picture of His work in creation, and now the focus is going to zero in on His specific plans for us as people as represented by Adam. It's an amazing way and an example of how the Bible ties its ideas together. So we've seen that there's poetry here. We've seen that this is a recurring heading. It's recurring heading is meant to introduce an account of something. In other words, if you look more closely at the way the Bible uses this phrase, these are the generations. You could summarize it this way. This is the account of events related to these people. So this is their story. And then it continues to recount the story, in this case, of the heavens and the earth, and more specifically related to particular individuals who have whose, uh, children have some significance and their generations have some significance to God's work as it's recorded in Genesis. All this to reinforce to us that this is an inspired record. The, the narrative perspective of the Bible is of God 
looking over the, and giving us an account of these things. And then sovereignly by His Spirit, dictating to His servant Moses, inspiring him with these words to then record. We have a heaven's eye view of, of creation and history that we see in, throughout the book of Genesis. Now, in this, in this verse 4, in this inspired record, we also have the introduction of God's covenant name. We see in the last portion that in that day, the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Notice again a reminder that LORD is in all capital letters. Now that's what they call the Tetragrammaton, which means four consonants, Yahweh. It is the highest name for God, if you will, in Scripture. It is the name of God's self-disclosure, Him revealing Himself in His character and His intentions to His uh, beings that are made in His image. Now one of the primary texts we've studied this in the past for this self-revelation comes from the burning bush to Moses. I am, I am Yahweh, the one who keeps His promises. We were recounting in morning prayer this morning how amazing our God is. He always keeps His promises. But even more than this, He keeps our promises for us in a sense. In Christ Jesus, Yahweh the covenant keeper has not only kept His promises to save us, to redeem us, to finish His work, to fulfill that which He intended and prophesied through the course of His Scriptures, but He has also given us Jesus Christ, whose righteousness becomes ours when we are saved. And when is this covenant God introduced to us? Is it some innovation in the New Testament where some people come together with a good idea to start a new religion? No, Yahweh is introduced right here, the covenant-keeping God, the one who keeps His promises and supplies us the ability to keep our own promises to Him and supplies us in the future with the Savior who will make it possible for us to be in right relationship with the Lord. That is Yahweh, and He is God. Yahweh Elohim, the covenant-keeper, the one who takes great pains and goes, moves heaven and earth to re reconcile man unto himself, who has established a way for us to be in relationship after our sin to be redeemed and then reunited with the holy God. This God is the creator of heaven and earth. And the inspired record tells us this from the very beginning. There, these two words are seldom paired in the scriptures. This is a more rare account, but it is to say that there is no other God. There is no Baal. There is no Asterisk. There is no other pagan concept of higher authority. There is no polytheistic notion of multiple forces in conflict. No. Those who are the covenant people of God know from the very beginning that the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the covenant keeper, the one who has made a way for you to be united with Him, Yahweh, is the one and only Elohim, the one and only God. Genesis 2, 1 through 9, thus introduces, it presents to us divine precedent and the inspired record. Thirdly, we have a historical prologue. Now, what is a historical prologue? Well, in covenantal language, there is usually an accounting, almost always, invariably, in the structure of ancient covenants, there is a record of the relationship of the greater king with the lesser subject. And this happens in Genesis. In other words, you might wonder... Why does it seem like from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, we're going back over some material? We've had the six days, seven days of creation indeed, but then in Genesis 2 it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. 
So you see right there a reference, to, again, to the sixth day of creation when man was created. What's going on here? Well, the reason that there's a repeat or we're going back, retreading some ground with more specificity is because this is a record of God's relationship with man specifically. Genesis chapter 1 up to 2 verse 3 gives us the big picture view of God's creative power. But now we're zeroing in. It's a flashback, if you will, to the events that happened with respect to God and his special creature, namely Adam, made in his image. Adam and soon to be Eve as the record unfolds. So this day six flashback has a purpose. We see that oftentimes this is the way the Bible records things. Now, if it doesn't make sense to us on the face of it, it's because we need to understand more of how the Bible chooses or how the Bible reveals God's character and work. Sometimes there'll be a big picture, a sort of view from the heaven's eye, if you will. If you imagine like in an airplane, 20,000 feet, or imagine you're searching on your internet for a Google image and you see the United States from a satellite view, but then you want to see what your neighborhood looks like. And so you click twice or whatever on the general area, and suddenly it blows up. This is kind of like what's going on here. In Genesis chapter 1, it's a satellite view, if you will, of the full scope of creation. But then uh, God, as it were, in his sovereign revelation, double clicks on day 6, and then we zoom in, and we see events that happened on that glorious day when Adam was created, and we see God's purposes revealed. We see that his relationship with God, Adam's relationship with God, comes into focus in this historical prologue or this brief account um, that God gives us in his word. A second aspect in this kind of zooming in on day six, we see that there is creation uh, pre-dominion. In other words, there is an aspect of man's calling that is evident even in the way that the plants in the fields uh, and the, plant, the plants and the uh, bushes of the field and so forth are referenced in verse 5. It says, again, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So you might ask yourself, hey, uh, wait, I thought God created all of these things on, on was it day 3? or day, Yeah, the day 3, when the plants of the field brought forth their fruit. But um, in this more zoomed-in focus, what we find as that there was aspects of creation's multiplication and flourishing according to his command in 128 that were yet waiting for man. In other words, man had work to do. Just as God finished his work in creation, now man was called to subdue, to be fruitful, to multiply, to take dominion, and to cause the earth to be filled with the glory of the Lord as his co-agent as his deputy working alongside to participate in this sense in God's creative work. What a glorious privilege that he would include us made in his image and his plan to cause the earth to spring forth with fruitfulness and glory. This would come when man was obedient to his dominion mandate. You see, it says that there was yet growth and yet bounty to be fulfilled in creation. But at this time, verse 5, there was no man yet to work the ground. So we see that there is a purpose that God has given us to participate in His plan to bring Him glory when we, in the new covenant, enter into our call to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue, and to take dominion. That is, to serve God by participating in His plan to uh, spread His glory. And we do this 
in multiple ways, obedience to his law, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, leading a life of faith, and so forth, and even our vocations. Indeed, when we go and we work and we seek to bring things into order and to honor God in this sense. So in this historical prologue, we see this day six flashback. We see even evidence in creation of our purpose and call. And we see finally that man is custom made. God has made us uh, in a special way. Note verse seven. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. This is incredible. We have already noted in Genesis 1 verse 2, the evidence, what was the, what was the uh, fruit or the work, the evidence of the Spirit's work when He hovered over the face of the waters? It's the same sense. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and suddenly all that follows springs forth in the six days of creation. Well, there is a, a recapitulation, if you will. There's, this idea is presented again in the creation of man. After God forms man from the dust of the ground, then he, that is the Spirit of God, breathes into his nostrils, that is man's nostrils, the breath of life, and man becomes a living creature. We spent some time in our last message uh, talking about what it might mean from the greater testimony of Scripture to be made in God's image. We talked about a certain essence or essential, what does it mean to be essentially human? Aspects of man's being which correspond to his call for dominion. Man has reasoning, capacity for comprehending ethics, that is, what is right and wrong. He has obligations, duties that he must answer to the Lord for. He has a high degree of consciousness. He has the endowments of personhood. He is a person. Just like God is one God and three persons, so man, each of us, are a person. By virtue of this very incredible work at the beginning of creation, God breathing His life and spirit, as it were, into us. And man has a soul, therefore. He is more than just the sum of his atoms. He's not just material matter, but there is something transcendent. There's something immaterial. There's something indeed eternal about us as we are made in the image of God. Man is body and he is soul. Now notice in this picture that pottery is in view. We see that uh, man was made in the image of God from stuff, from matter. It says that God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We don't have time to turn there, but there are many cross-references that pick up on this idea through Scripture. Job 10, 8 through 12 is one. You can mark that for future study. Job 10, 8 through uh, 8 through 12, also Romans 9. Um, what right does the uh, clay have to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? So there's this understanding that we are the handiwork of God. We've been fashioned, as it were, as a vessel, as pottery. We are quite literally pottery. We are God's handiwork. We are craftsmanship from God, and we are made with a body by God's intent from the dust of the ground. And so this is a part of what we are. And but more than this, we are not just body, but we are also soul. God breathes then into this pottery, into the nostrils of man, the breath of life, and he becomes a living creature. Now, let me give you one example of application where this concept of body and soul is so important, even in our day. Today, and this idea is encroaching even upon the confessing church, some people think that their mind can tell them something different than their body is. 
In my mind, that is to say, in my soul, I feel like I'm a woman, a man might say. But in my body, uh, it's just tragic because my anatomy and biology is a man, so I need to do something. I need to reorganize myself to come into line with what my mind tells me I am. Well, what does this notion presuppose? It presupposes that man's mind and his body are disconnected. There isn't continuity there. No, from the very beginning, God breathed into man. He had a purpose for his body and breathed into his soul. Man is a dichotomous, that is, a two-part being. And to say that you could be one thing in your mind and another thing in your body is to blaspheme your creator. It's to blaspheme your creator. It is to rebel against his will and intentions revealed in your material person and your consciousness. Now, this is not to say we aren't broken. We are broken in body and broken in consciousness as a consequence of our sin. But what is the means of repair? Is it a a lifetime of hormone therapy and invasive surgery to try to uh, remake ourselves into our own image? No. What is the remedy for our brokenness? It is the surgery that only the Holy Spirit can do to transform our heart. And then through sanctification to transform all of our being more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We need recreation. We can't fix ourselves. There's no hope and salvation in the medical community. There's no hope and salvation in sociology and skeptical pursuits. No matter how much time, energy, effort, money, and technology man has to invest in it, no. The answer to who we are And how we can be remade and reconciled, receive salvation, and have life again, meaningful purpose in our lives. The answers go all the way back to Genesis, and they are fulfilled in Christ. This leads me to our final point this morning. Genesis 2, 1 through 9 presents to us a redemptive foreshadow, a little snapshot into the future of God's glory to come. Let us cover this briefly as we will expound it more in future weeks. Verse 9 of our text, verse 8. And God, the Lord God, again, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And notice three types of trees in verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. It's tree kind, number one. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the second kind of tree. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also in the garden. So these three categories of tree, if you will, represent a framework for understanding. First of all, food. God has provided for us. It is God who sustains us. He is the one who gives us the meat and drink that we need. We see this as an echo of Genesis 1.29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. He does the same for the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, it goes on to say. But as we recognize, you know, every day, the meal at our table, if you are accustomed to pray before your meal, there's biblical reason to do so. You're acknowledging Genesis 1.29, if you do it in the right heart. You're acknowledging Genesis 2.8, that God has planted for us, as it were, even now, post-Eden, trees, plants, crops, yielding fruit and seed in season for us to maintain, thank you, Lord, for this food. Genesis gives you a whole new uh, vision, or if you've lost, if, if your prayer, mealtime prayers have fallen into a state of sort of meaningless routine, it gives you a vision for purpose for praying and thanking God. 
This is the first kind of tree. God sustains His creatures. Second kind of tree, more specific. God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. But secondly, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And here we have a redemptive foreshadow. This tree of life, it represents a fullness, a completion, a telos that is a direction unto a purpose or goal. And this tree, if it was eaten from, we see later in in the text of Genesis, then man would live forever. And we know as Genesis continues to unfold that man falls and he is banished from the garden. And there are two flaming or there are two cherubim, that is angels, warriors, heavenly hosts with a flaming swords, as it were. That and we see this picture in Genesis that guard entrance to the tree or to the garden, which holds out yet the promise of hope, the tree of the or the tree of life. So one might ask, how can we? Partake of the tree of life if these swords of judgment bar our way. And in this sense, this passage is a foreshadow of redemption. The tree of life is available in Jesus Christ alone. He is the one who secured passage for us past the cherubim with their flaming swords of judgment by taking the sword of judgment in his own flesh, in his own blood. Because Jesus was crucified, because his side was pierced with the spear of divine judgment for your sins, there is open to you in and only through Jesus Christ, safe passage through the tree of life one day. We read of this in Revelation again. We're recognizing the continuity of Scripture from the beginning to the end. What better way to make this point than to turn to Revelation 22? Just listen to a few verses. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. And they will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, there is a plan. There is a future. There is access purchased for us through Jesus Christ to the tree of life. Back to our text and in closing this morning, the final tree and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why does this passage introduce this ominous note? This sort of suspenseful and dark overtone, if you will, if you picture it as a piece of music, it's because we're about to see shortly in the record, man's fall. But we know the end. I've just given you the spoiler. I didn't give you a spoiler alert, but we know from all of Scripture that even here, God has a plan. A lamb would be slain one day who would purchase access to the tree of life for all who are in the second Adam. Praise His holy name. So as Genesis introduces to us these categories, remember how they allow for us or how they provide for us understanding through the course of history. There's divine precedent. There's an inspired record. There's this historical prologue. There's the account of what God has done. And there is a redemptive foreshadowing. There's pictures of salvation pointing forward to Christ in the future. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we're so thankful in your holy scriptures, the evidence of your glory, your genius, your power, your divine inspiration, and the promise of salvation. I pray that you would write these truths on the table of our hearts and let our faith be quickened and encouraged, Lord, when we see them laid out before us. Open our eyes to see, Lord, and our ears to hear your holy word and to apply it this week, that you might be glorified. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.